If you'll put your imagination caps on. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that um, you've shown us your ways, which are different from our ways. And um, I pray that you would humble us to consider your ways, to submit to your ways, that we might find life. Uh, we might find the way of life. That we would follow your son, Jesus Christ, even into death to the sacrifice of ourselves that we might find ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do this difficult thing by showing us your son all the more, that your spirit would be present with us, opening our eyes and our ears to, to see and to hear him. And may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you were not with us last week, which was many people, because it was snowing out, but if you were not with, not with us last week, then you missed the introduction to the epistle of James. We'll be, we'll be in James for a while. In fact, if you missed last week, you missed only one verse. We spent the entire sermon in just the first verse, introducing James and his audience. And this week, we'll move not far beyond the first verse. We're, we're going to move another three verses, where in the space where other scriptural letters contain a note of thanksgiving, James jumps right into his instruction. His letter has been called the, the Proverbs of the New Testament, partly because of this style with which he writes. He offers lef lessons in, in abbreviated, sometimes seemingly unrelated bursts, and he puts them in oftentimes indiscernible sequence within the same chapter. Sometimes the only apparent link between the sections are similarly sounding Greek words that don't shed light on meaning so much as create a feeling of continuation and momentum in the letter. The resonances carry the reader from topic to topic with a feeling of connection despite a dissimilarity in content. And in verse 2, the topic for James is the prophet of endurance, under trials. My brothers and sisters, he writes, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Our first task this morning, as we seek to understand James's instruction, is to ask what James is envisioning when he talks about trials of various kinds. If you're looking at the NRSV, the, the translation in our pew, the word translated as trial in verse 2 is the same exact word that is translated as temptation in verse 12. In English, we have, we have two words to differentiate between those two experiences. We use trial to describe this outward experience of suffering or period of testing, and we use temptation for the inner enticement to sin. In the, in the New Testament, however, there's only wor one word for both of those experiences. So the context must determine the sense in which we understand the word. And in verse 2, it appears that James is envisioning trials as outward suffering that tests the faith of those who experience them. It's important also to note the, the general nature of the trials that James has in mind. 
He calls them trials of, of all kinds or various kinds. In other words, he's not thinking of one specific thing. His readers were almost certainly being persecuted for their faith, but persecution did not exhaust James's idea of trials of various kinds. Given the references to, to poverty and wealth that are liberally sprinkled throughout his letter, there's a likelihood that some of his readers were poor. Poverty certainly qualifies as a trial of the kind that tests faith with its often attendant feelings of anxiety and defeat, fear or anger, envy or jealousy. One scholar writes that by stressing that the trials were of many kinds, James deliberately casts his net widely, including the many kinds of suffering that Christians undergo in this fallen world, sickness, loneliness, bereavement, disappointments. And it's my suspicion that were each of us to have a turn at sharing the trials we have endured in just the, the past two years, that we could fill hours enumerating the pains and sorrows, the frustrations and concerns, the disappointments and losses that each of us has uniquely endured and are still presently enduring. If you were given that opportunity to come before us, to tell your story, what would you tell us? That's what James is envisioning and is calling trials of various kinds. Whatever you have experienced or experienced, James includes it in this widely cast net of his. Now with that in mind, let us return to hear James's instruction once again. My brothers and sisters, he writes, whenever you face trials of any kinds, the kind that you have in your mind, consider it nothing but joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. With those pains of the last two years in your mind, James is so bold as to command that we consider it nothing but joy. Nothing but joy is how the NRSV translated. The ESV reads, consider it all joy, while the NIV reads, consider it pure joy. And the best of those is probably the NIV's translation of pure joy, because James is not suggesting that joy should be the exclusive emotion of Christians when they face all kinds of trials. After all, Jesus himself was deeply distressed in his spirit and wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. However, joy should be one of the emotions that's in the mix. James is therefore advocating not for the exclusivity of joy, but for the intensity of that emotion in the mix. And admittedly, it sounds a bit like the advice to look at the bright side or the cold consolation that everything happens for a reason, that too many well-meaning Christians eject from their mouths when they don't know what else to say to the grieving person in front of them and would be better off saying nothing at all. Such advice is often given by those who are uncomfortable being drawn into another person's grief, and they say such things in order to maintain a self-preserving distance from the grieving person. Those persons do, not, do actually insist that joy should be the sole emotion, because they can't personally handle anything else. And grief, even if it belongs to someone else, threatens them. But that's not what James is doing. 
James embraces the full range of human emotion when enduring trials of any kind, but he's saying that amongst the tears and anger, there must be for the Christian a, a quiet confidence, an accompanying true joy that God is using the pain to advance and form you as a person. Weep, yes, but also joyfully trust that through your tears and trials, God is bringing you to maturity and completion. There was a time in the life of the famous Christian poet John Donne when he, when he almost died. He flirted with death for several months before finally recovering. And reflecting on that time, Donne wrote, Though I may have seniors, others may be elder than I, yet I have proceeded apace in a good university, and gone a, great gone a great way in a little time by the furtherance of a vehement fever. The fever which almost killed him, Dunn calls in retrospect a good university. Looking back, he saw that he made progress in life even as his life was threatened. And James is trying to capture this retrospective confidence and bring it into the present. So that such confidence in God's ability to turn a fever or any trial into a good university is able to, to soften our grief with the experience of pure joy. As one scholar writes, the difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith, heeding it in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be refined away and so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. The brother or sister therefore rejoices, not because of the trial itself, which is painful, but because of what they believe in faith that God will accomplish in them through the trial they are experiencing. The, the full line of, of James's logic, though, is that Christians should be joyful in trials because this testing of their faith produces endurance, and endurance is effective in producing virtue, maturity, completion. Now, there are a couple of assumptions behind this logic that are, are worth our inquiry because the testing of faith through trials does not always produce endurance. And neither does mere endurance or, or patience always produce maturity and completion. Patience in, in various trials can actually have the opposite effect of what James is saying here. Patience on its own can just as easily deform a person as it can be the means by which they are brought to maturity. There are certainly people in this world who have been broken by trials and have never recovered. They may have survived, but they are a shadow of themselves prior to whatever grief they have endured. The death of a parent or a child, the loss of a job, a divorce, the list goes on. Patience has had little effect other than to sustain a broken spirit in them. But the idea of endurance as Patience is not the character of the endurance James is describing in his letter. The New Testament scholar Dan McCartney points out that the word James uses for endurance is, in his letter frequently shows up in Greek moral literature. The Greek philosopher Plutarch describes endurance as patiently enduring whatever comes without allowing distress to influence one's convictions, thinking, or lifestyle. Plato promotes endurance as a particularly desirable character for a soldier. Mark McCartney points out, therefore, that 
The Greek term thus has a more active character than the English word patience, which connotes passivity. But unlike the Stoics, James commends endurance not for the sake of distancing one's soul from the world of pain and dirt, but in hope of eschatological exaltation. Endurance, therefore, is closely related to the biblical notion of faith. If you didn't follow all that, it's intended to point out that endurance for James is an activity that one engages in by faith with their eyes firmly set on Christ. It's not just patience in waiting for some trial to pass, but active engagement in faith so that when it passes, you discover the progress you have made in holiness in the crucible of suffering. And this is precisely the image that the author of the letter to the Hebrews employs in his inspiring word of encouragement in Hebrews 12. He writes, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Who for, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Here in Hebrews 12, we get the particularities of what active endurance under trials looks like. And it's helpful to point out here that trials are often the occasion for temptation. In the midst of trials, therefore, endurance consists in attending to the temptations that afflict us from within and the habits and behaviors that feed temptations. Endurance that leads to maturity and completion under trials does not disengage under duress, but understands that this is precisely the moment that one is simultaneously most vulnerable to temptation and poised for growth. And so instead, actively engages in the starvation of temptation and a more intentional pursuit of Jesus. The Christian for whom endurance has its full effect is the one who never takes her eyes off of Jesus and pursues him while actively shedding the sin that clings so closely to her. She's entering the crucible of suffering where God will make her as pure as gold and refined as silver. If she clings to Christ rather than letting sin cling to her, then she will come out mature and complete. And that is cause for joy. But there's... Still one assumption that we haven't yet asked about, and that's the assumption that the experience of trials necessarily produces endurance. James doesn't seem to allow any other outcome in verse 3, where he plainly states, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It seems like a pretty big assumption to me, given that we now, what we now know about James's understanding of endurance as an active engagement under suffering. Seems like a long way to go. Seems like endurance is not a given for the person who is suffering. So what is it that would motivate or, or move a suffering person out of passive patience into the kind of active endurance that requires great effort but results in growth? We must first allow James to answer this question before turning back to Hebrews 12. James begins his instruction in verse 2 by making it clear he's speaking with Christians here. He addresses them as my brothers and sisters. In other words, these are people in possession of the Spirit of God. 
where does a grieving person find the strength to endure, to re-engage in a life of faith and discipline? It's the spirit within them who provides it. James is not appealing to frail human beings to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. No, he's appealing to Christians to lean on their God and from him draw the strength necessary to endure under trials. God is our strength. He provides what he requires. He lives within us. But he also provides us with more motivations than what we find in the close... He provides us with, with more motivations that we find in, in the closely related passage of Hebrews 12. Right? The question we're asking is, how does a person suffering trials of various kinds find the motivation for endurance of the kind that James is promoting in his letter? And the answer that Hebrews 12 offers is that the love of Jesus provides a necessary motivation because he has gone before us in this difficult task and it's his spirit who lives within us. Hebrews 12 encourages Christians to look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus endured the greatest of all trials at the cross. Crucifixion was a shameful way to die in the Roman world. The Roman politician and lawyer Cicero living in the first century said that the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It's not only the actual occurrence of these things, but the very mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. The cross was so shameful that Cicero would not even speak of crucifixion or allow the idea to enter his mind. But the cross was far more than being shameful, far more than shameful in the minds of Romans. For the, the cross to the Jews was a sign of God's curse. It's written in their very book of the law that anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. The Son of God, therefore, took upon himself the curse of God. Paul then Galatians 3 tells us why. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, the product of Christ enduring the shameful trial of the cross was the redemption of a people for himself. It was therefore love that motivated him. Love for you if indeed you have given yourself to him in faith and the spirit of Christ lives in you. And you know what the author of Hebrews says about this loving self-sacrifice of Jesus? He says that Jesus considered the trial of the cross to be joy, not because the experience of the cross was joyful, but because he was confident that through the trial of the cross, he was purchasing your soul by his blood. For by his blood we are forgiven, by his blood we are reconciled to God. You, therefore, were the joy that motivated him to endure the trial of the cross. He loves you to death. He knows everything about you, and still he loves you to death. And that, that infinite and unfathomable love of Christ for you, is what motivates the Christian to endure under trials. 
He's gone before you, and your salvation was the product of his suffering. And he now calls you to follow him. And by your suffering, he's promised to perfect you through his spirit living within you. You can consider it joy when you endure trials, because trials are the path to salvation. It's a strange logic that James lays out for us. And yet Jesus has, impro- has proved the integrity and truth of James's logic. Whatever you are experiencing, therefore, will you not now endure in Jesus, relying on his spirit for strength by laying aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, being joyfully confident that Jesus, having died for you, is now perfecting you through the sufferings of your own. Hebrews 12 says the saints are surrounding us and cheering for us. They have completed their trials on this this earth, and they too know that James's logic is true. But let us prove it true in our lives as well, in order to find, in the end, that we have proceeded apace in a good university. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.